Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. We are delighted you can join us for the study of God's Word this morning. As we do every Sunday in this class, we'll be addressing today the three scripture readings that are assigned not for today, but for next Sunday. So we'll be looking at the lessons for Sunday, July 19. And we're going to be looking, for example, first at Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 8. We'll then look at Romans 8, verses 18 through 27. And finally, we'll end with Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, and 36 through 43. Again, we're delighted you can join us, whether you're joining us uh, here in the greater St. Louis area on 850 KFUO AM, or literally, if you're joining us around the world on KFUO.org, we're glad you're with us. Let's begin with a word of prayer, if we might. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your blessings to us, especially the blessing of forgiveness and everlasting life through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that for our sake, for your great love for us, he came, he lived, he suffered, he died, and he rose once again. And through the faith that you have worked in us, you have given to us all that Christ accomplished for us. As a result, we have everlasting life in your presence to look forward to. We thank you also for your word, your revelation to us of things that we could not know otherwise on our own. And we thank you for this opportunity to study that word we thank you for the Holy Spirit's blessing upon the study of that word. And we ask you to be with us then in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, first lesson that we're going to be looking at, as I indicated, was Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 8. And in these verses, we're going to see God, through the prophet Isaiah, really taking on the idols and the idolatry uh, that the people were practicing uh, at that time. Uh, and, and clearly here, God is um, testifying as to his own superiority over any particular mere idol. And just to pull back for a moment, this whole problem of idolatry was a very serious one for God's people throughout uh, the Old Testament, uh, especially prior uh, to their Babylonian captivity. It just seems like it was an ever-present trouble for them. Um, and, and we can say much the same, of course, for our world today. There are so many things uh, that people can make into a god, into an idol in their lives. You know, Luther says in his explanation of the first commandment that we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And yet we look around us and we see how people have made, for example, their career or their possessions or their their fame and, and glory, uh, so many different things can be turned into an idol and, and worshipped by people in this day and age as well. So God's people in his own day, uh, back in the Old Testament times rather, are certainly uh, no exception. Uh, this has been an, an ever-present trouble uh, for God's people. As I was preparing this, I was thinking of Joshua's words to God's people. Uh, near the end of the book of Joshua, chapter 24. And this is it's almost prophetic, really, uh, in terms of um, the, the challenge and the problem that God's people are going to have with idols. I'm going to just read for you from Joshua 24, starting with verse uh, 14. 
And uh, Joshua says here, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us up and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, also we will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people all that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. And I wanted to read that because even though the people made a, an agreement, made a, you know, their, their solemn pledge that they would serve the Lord, we know, unfortunately, historically, that did not turn out to be the case. It was always the gods of the uh, surrounding peoples, Baal and Asherah, Marduk, the list could go on and on, that God's people were seemingly drawn to worship. Many times they would worship the one true God and the other gods as if they were hedging their bets. But so many times we find them falling down to and worshiping the false gods. So that's some of the context that we see here. Uh, as we uh, read God's words in Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. Uh, God is really, as I said in this chapter, really hammering away at the false gods and the sin of idolatry. So let's go into, starting at verse 6, and let me read, this is only three verses, so let me read verses 6 through 8, and then we'll come back and comment on it. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. 
Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Well, let's go back, uh, starting in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, and uh, this word for Lord is Yahweh, uh, the, the personal name of God. Uh, and he, now we're going to have some other words that follow here that kind of describe what or who this Lord is. Uh, different titles that might describe Yahweh or describe the Lord. First of all, he says, the King of Israel. And while Israel had human kings that uh, were appointed for them, uh, many of them not good and not faithful to the Lord. Some of them, some of them were. Some of them were good and brought about reform and tried to bring the people back to God. But so many of them, uh, even themselves, engaged in idolatry or uh, even, <laughs> even facilitated that idolatry in some cases. Uh, Yahweh here, the Lord, is the true king of Israel. And although the, the human kings were frail and, and would fail, at least most of them it seems, uh, Yahweh, or God, God's reign, is perfect, and it lasts forever. Uh, Exodus 15, verse 18 says, The Lord will reign forever and ever. So although earthly kings and earthly rulers come and go, this one who is the Lord and is the king over Israel has a reign that has no end. Both he and his word last forever. Uh, next it goes on to describe him, uh, his redeemer. And uh, we think of something that is redeemed as something that is purchased or uh, bought. And we know, of course, God chose the, the, His people. They are His chosen people. He chose them not because of anything that uh, existed in them or quality that they had, anything they did or didn't do. He chose them as He chooses us, merely by His grace. And, of course, the ultimate Redeemer would come in the incarnation of our Savior, Jesus Christ who would redeem us, who would buy us with a price, namely his blood shed and his life voluntarily given for us on the cross. And then next, he is the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of, uh, we sometimes say the Lord of Sabaoth. Uh, we think of all the heavenly hosts, not only people, uh, but angels, archangels, cherubim, seraphim, he is the Lord of all. Uh, he says here, I am the first and the last. Um, kind of a, you know, this title is also, of course, given to Jesus um, in the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation, for example, 117, 2 verse 8, 21 verse 6, and 22 verse 13. But Again, here we think of the uniquely eternal nature of God. That He, for example, never had a beginning and never will have an end. He is, He says, the first and the last. Uh, 
it might be possible for us to, con to think of or wrap our mind around something that has no end. But just try to think of something that has no beginning. <laughs> it's, it's uh, I don't know about you, but for me at least, it's impossible because everything we see around us has had a beginning at some time. Uh, whether it's the car we drive, the, the home that we live in, uh, there was a time when it did not exist, and there was a time then when it came into existence. Not so with God. He is there before all things, and He also never has an end. So He says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And that is, again, the exclusive claim of Christianity, that there are not many gods and many ways. There is simply one God and only one way to that God or to restoration with that God, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ. There are no other gods. Again, there are items in this world and things in this world that people try to make into a God in their life, but there is, in the end, only one God. He goes on to say, it's almost a challenge here, starting in verse 7. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. So it's, it's a bold challenge to these false gods. They are all frauds and false gods. But if they, if they think they're a God, let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. In other words, bring the proof before me. Since I appointed an ancient people. Again, going back to the God who called and chosen, chose and appointed His own people out of His grace and out of His love. And again, we are His people. We do not have some other God who chose us or redeemed us or uh, is Lord over us. There is only the one God who has chosen us. Then a message of hope. Fear not, nor be afraid. How important those words would be to his people as they would be taken away uh, ultimately in 586 B.C., taken away to Babylon, and there be wondering, uh, is God truly the one true God? Because there in Babylon, they would, of course, be ruled over by the, the king of another nation, not their own king. And they may begin to fear, they may begin to doubt and wonder. Uh, in the ancient world, it was thought that when one country defeated another, it was also proof that not only that nation was stronger, but the god or gods of that nation were stronger than the gods of uh, your nation. And God is, uh, you might say, preparing His people here through the prophet Isaiah for that time when they are going to be ruled by a king of another nation. But he reminds them here that he is the only one true God. And so fear not, he says, nor be afraid. I think uh, these are words that we can apply to ourselves in these very uh, perilous, we might say, and uh, uh, very uh, uh, unpeaceful uh, times in our world and especially in our nation at this time. Fear not, nor be afraid. Um, again, remembering that God is God 
and he rules over the kings and the rulers of this world. That's great comfort for us to remember as well. He goes on to say, have I not told you from of old and declared it? And of course, the answer is, uh, yes, you have. And he, he reminds them, we might say, to consider what he has already testified to them and spoken to them. Are you, and you are my witnesses. They are his witnesses to all that he has done and all that he has already spoken to them for generation upon generation. Again, we're in the same boat, aren't we? We are all witnesses uh, to what God has revealed to us, what he has done in our midst, uh, what is recorded in the Holy Scriptures. We are all witnesses. We are his witnesses. Then he asked the question, is there a God besides me? Of course, that expects the answer, no. Uh, in verse uh, 6, he has already given that. Uh, answer he when he said I am the first and I am the last besides me there is no God that is simply the way it is that is the truth there is no rock I know not any and so I guess when we look at uh, these three verses there's both I guess an implied uh, warning here that again there is no other God there is only one God and secondly, these are words of comfort to us, that the one true God is in fact the one true God. There is no other one like him. And of course, this is the same God who has declared over and over again his love for us, his unconditional, unending love for us. And has, of course, again demonstrated that love in the sending of his son and in the sacrifice of his own son for our sin. So ultimately, words of comfort to us as they would be words of comfort to God's people uh, as they were going to go off uh, into captivity in Babylon. So that ends our Old Testament reading. Let's take a look now at the epistle lesson for next Sunday, and that is Romans 8, verses 18 through 27. And again, I think these verses are particularly appropriate for us in these days of pandemic, first of all, as we um, have around us, all around us, the illness and death and, and economic strife also that COVID-19 or the coronavirus has caused around us, and also um, all the division, all the uh, contentiousness, we might say, that we see around us in our world and in our society today. These words of Paul, I think, are going to be uh, very, very appropriate uh, for us and very applicable for us. Uh, let me start with verse 18 here again, Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So here Paul, and God through Paul, we should say, is asking us to remember the big picture, we might say. And while we might have suffering now, while we might have uh, problems and all kinds of issues right now, Paul reminds us they are not worth comparing. They're not uh, of equal value or on the same, uh, you might look at it as, as sort of a, uh, a balancing type of scale. And on the one side of the scale you have the present sufferings and trouble, and on the 
other side of the scale, you have the glory that is to be revealed to us and that one isn't worth comparing uh, in, in magnitude to the other one. Uh, Paul says the glory that is to be revealed. Now, we're talking here, of course, about the glory that will be revealed on the day that Christ returns. There will be a full manifestation uh, of his glory on that day. And uh, we'll talk about the fact that, that our bodies will be glorified on that day as well. This really, this first verse, you might say, is the foundational verse for this entire section. And the remaining verses in this section, verses 19 through 27, uh, merely offer support for this verse. So again, let's remember this verse as we go through. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Then now, support for that. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So here Paul branches out and speaks of creation as, it, as if it um, was also um, a person who is, is suffering. And we think of the, the corruption of God's entire creation by sin. Of course, we compare it with the original created order. We think of uh, the book of Genesis and how after each day, God saw what he had made and, and concluded that it was good, it was perfect. And at the end of the sixth day, that it was very good. So in other words, everything was perfect and in harmony. And then after sin enters the world, uh, we see how everything has changed. And now things are no longer in harmony with one another. Uh, and God's entire creation uh, is permeated and corrupted by sin. And Paul speaks of that creation as waiting uh, with, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now let's talk about this revealing of the sons of God. Um, it is, of course, known now who the sons of God are. We were talking about those who are Christians, those who are children of God, we might say. That is known, but there will be an even fuller manifestation of that on the day that Christ returns. Uh, in Matthew, it talks about the separating of the, the sheep and the goats. Uh, we're going to see in our gospel lesson the, the um, separating of the wheat and the weeds on the last day and the weeds being thrown into uh, everlasting fire. Um, so there will be a full and complete manifestation of who the sons of God are on that last day. Then verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Well, again, the creation itself, as we spoke of, was good, was perfect, but it was subjected. Notice that's a passive verb. Creation, of course, didn't choose this futility and this corruption. Um, and, and that word futility really points out the dire straits uh, that God's creation is in. We think of, I should have mentioned, we think of all 
the effects of sin in the created order. Uh, we think of things like hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, fires, and all the calamities uh, that we see around us. And uh, we, of course, are a, as, as human beings, are a subset of that creation. And, of course, we too uh, have been uh, corrupted uh, totally and, and permeated by sin, even according to our own nature. Um, it talks in this verse also about him who subjected it. And there's been a lot of speculation and a lot written about who is this him who subjected the creation to futility. Uh, we, we conclude that that actually is God. God is not the cause, of course, of that corruption or that futility, but it is God uh, who pronounced the sentence, I guess you might say, the punishment uh, as a result of sin. Let me read for you Genesis chapter 3, verses 17. Uh, I'll just read 17 and 18. Uh, I'll, I'll read 19 as well. Um, and, Adam, and to Adam he, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Uh, we see in those verses God subjecting the creation um, as a result of the sin, very clear as a result of the sin that both Eve and Adam committed. Um, and notice there he says, in, uh, Paul says, though, he subjected it, comma, in hope. So it's not that it was subjected and there is no hope whatsoever, uh, that it should be totally um, an action of, that brings despair. And here we think of Genesis 3.15, where just a few verses earlier, God promises that he is going to send one who will crush the head of Satan. And, of course, we know that's the first promise of the coming of a Savior, the coming of Jesus. We go on now, verse 21, back in Romans chapter 8, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we think of the creation itself being set free uh, that Paul pictures it as being in bondage right now, uh, almost as if it's being held prisoner right now. Another, simply another way, another image of looking at the effect of this sin and evil in the world. Um, we read, of course, in Revelation chapter uh, 21 about God making all things new. And that will happen uh, as, as his creation is made new, is restored and made new uh, on the last day when he returns in all power and in all glory. Um, I wanted to read for you just a, a section that I think is helpful. Uh, this is from a publication uh, of our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's Commission on Theology and Church Relations. And it talks about uh, what will happen on that last day. By the way, that uh, 
publication is called Together with All Creatures, and it's a report uh, from, again, our Synod's Commission on Theology and Church Relations. And I want to read just a short um, section here uh, from uh, page uh, 38. Um, And it says here that it is perhaps best to say that the present forms of the world uh, is or will be passing away. In other words, this is describing what's going to happen on that last day. That creation, we don't think, will be annihilated or you know, completely destroyed, but rather the form of this world will pass away. And it goes on to say, the renewed creation will shed the old creation like shedding a tattered, moldy, old garment. It is not creation itself, but the present form of this creation that passes away. And the Bible verse, 1 Corinthians 7.31, is referenced here. God will set creation free from its bondage to decay, and it references this verse, Romans 8.21, that came with the curse. God will purify creation from corruption. And that is indeed what will happen on the last day, that even creation itself will be completely renewed from the um, form of decay and corruption that it has right now. Oh, we better go on here. Uh, Verse um, 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Here yet is another way, another image that Paul uses uh, to describe again that longing for this creation being renewed on the last day. He compares it to a, a woman who is in the pains of childbirth, the groaning that takes place as a result, and that uh, is a time of great anticipation, of course, of what is going to occur on that last day. And so we have here, again, just a, and I should say that this, this imagery of creation groaning uh, is one that is in the Old Testament. We don't have the time now to, to uh, look up any of those passages, but if you want to, you can look at Job 31, verses 38 through 40, um, Isaiah 24, verses 4 and 7. And of course, um, We think about not only the pain and the groaning of childbirth, but the joy that follows uh, all of that uh, groaning and pain, the joy of the the life that comes forward. So it's a a very um, uh, apt analogy, you might think, uh, to to describe uh, this eager anticipation that we have for that last day and what will happen on that last day. Going on now, verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. So here now Paul is separating us from the creation around us and says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Let's go back and as we say, Paul says, uh, separates us out now from the rest of creation, and he refers to us as having the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, that term first fruits is actually an agricultural term, and it's one that we see repeatedly in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, uh, certain feasts 
or harvest festivals in the Old Testament, God's people were to bring forth the first fruits or the first of the harvest and offer it to God. It was an, uh, an understanding uh, by doing that, uh, that God is the source of this harvest that we have and that we want to give him the glory, the thanks, and the praise for that harvest. Uh, now here, it's a little bit different. Uh, the use is a little bit different because here, the first fruits of the Spirit is not something, of course, that we offer to God, but just the opposite. It's what God offers to us and already has given us, of course, the first fruit of the Holy Spirit. The idea of the first fruit agriculturally, of course, meant that this was just the first of the harvest, and there was much, much more out there in the field yet to come. And we can think of this first fruit of the Spirit as much the same. It is only the beginning of what God will give us, not only now, but for an eternity in and through His Holy Spirit. And so Paul describes as first fruits of the Spirit. We then, who have it, uh, are groaning inwardly. So you can almost again sense that eager anticipation we have for that uh, day that Christ will return and the glory that is yet to be revealed to us. Um, he says here, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now here again, we have the fact that we of course already have received adoption as God's sons, as his children. Scripture is, is clear certainly on that. In fact, you could look in the same chapter, uh, Romans 8 verse 15, uh, that talks about we are already the adopted children of God. But there is again a sense that it's going to be even more fully manifested again on that last day when Christ comes. And the redemption of our bodies, of course, that already has taken place. All, uh, all of us have been redeemed by the blood of Christ shed on the cross and His life given there. But again, on the last day, there will be an even fuller manifestation of that redemption. You might think of it, sometimes we use the term now and not yet. So there's a sense in which we all have these things now. In other words, adoption as God's sons and redemption of our bodies. But there is still a not yet in that there is even a greater uh, fulfillment and manifestation of that that will occur, uh, in this case, on the day that Christ returns. We think about, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul speaks there in glowing terms about what is going to happen in terms of our bodies on that last day. That now they are corruptible, then they will be incorruptible. Now they are mortal bodies, then they will be immortal, uh, and so on. So again, there's that full uh, manifestation of the redemption of our bodies that will take place on the last day, and we eagerly anticipate uh, that day. Verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Um, <clears throat> we don't want to use this word hope here. Uh, the Bible often speaks of hope, not in a sense of something that is uncertain. Like, for example, I might say, gee, I hope it rains today. Uh, we need some rain. 
uh, or, or I hope the St. Louis Cardinals have a good season this year when they start playing baseball again. It's not something that's uncertain. Rather, this term is used as hope in the opposite of despair. In other words, it's the expectation of something good. And Paul sort of hints at here that, you know, it's not something that we fully see yet, but we will see it, and we have this hope, and we wait for it here with patience. Um, it is hard for us, I'm sure, uh, when we think about all that is going to take place on that last day, to be here and to wait for it with patience. But that's what we, Paul says, that's what we do. We don't see it yet. It's, it's something we do not see fully, we should say, uh, but we will uh, when God makes all things new on that last day. Then verses 26 and 27 are very, very encouraging as Paul talks here about the work of the Holy Spirit. And these are verses that perhaps we don't emphasize as much as we should. Let me read both of them together as a unit and then go back and talk about them. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Isn't that a comforting verse? Uh, the Spirit, Paul talks about here, first of all, helps us in our weakness. Well, that weakness, of course, is a general statement of our uh, condition here. It includes all of our, we might say, our sinful weaknesses and insufficiencies, uh, not praying as often as we should, sometimes not even knowing what we should be praying or what we should be praying for, uh, not knowing in all cases the will of God. And how often don't we find ourselves in that situation? Situations where, frankly, we don't know what to pray for. We don't know what we should be asking God to have happen. Um, and so we often will use the phrase, if it be your will, when we are praying for physical things, things like a new job or a, a school that we want to uh, get into and, and be admitted to, uh, we just don't know, in the end, what the will of God is in those situations. And we pray using the phrase, if it be your will. Now, when we're praying for spiritual things, of course, we do know what the will of God is, namely our salvation, <laughs> and that we be, we be made steadfast in that faith and remain steadfast in that faith, uh, until uh, Christ calls us home, until uh, our soul is in His presence. Uh, on a, and then again on the last day when He returns and our bodies are raised, as we were just discussing. So there we don't use the phrase, if it be your will, when we're praying for spiritual things, because God in His Word has revealed to us what His will is in those situations. But what a comfort to know that the Spirit Himself, as Paul says here, is interceding for us. And that word interceding is, uh, really implies uh, going uh, before someone on their behalf. In other words, the, the Spirit is going to the Father on our behalf, and not only is interceding, but doing so with a language that is, as Paul says here, too deep for words, groanings that are too deep for words. In other words, 
human words fall short of expressing what the Spirit is pleading for us before the Father. So what a comfort for us uh, as Christians day in and day out. And then verse 27, He who searches hearts, and here this is God the Father that is being spoken of here. We can look at Psalm 44 verse 21. And speaking of God as the one who does search hearts, but here the Father knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Father knows the mind of the Spirit, of course. And it is this same Spirit, then, who intercedes for us according to the will of God. So it's almost a back and forth, you know, complete knowing uh, between the Father and the Spirit. Uh, there's that oneness and that, that complete knowledge of one another. And, of course, we think of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, not three separate and distinct gods, three separate and distinct persons, but yet one God. And again, that complete knowledge uh, that the Spirit has here for us. So uh, what a great section here in Romans chapter 8. Again, remember that first verse is the foundational verse. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And again, on the day that Christ comes and all creation is made new, we are, our bodies are raised and are made new. And again, that spirit who constantly intercedes for us. Um, all these verses, 19 through 27, really strengthen and fortify that first verse, verse 18. Well, with that then, let's move on to our gospel lesson. Our gospel lesson consists of Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30 and then verses 36 through 43. And we're going to see here that we are dealing with a parable. And a parable, if we were perhaps first should give a little understanding of what a parable in the Scriptures actually is. There is that old, what I call, Sunday school definition of a parable, namely an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Uh, that's okay as far as it goes. A parable, first of all, of course, is a story. It's not, Christ is not reporting a, you know, a factual event that took place. So it is a story that Christ tells. The story does have earthly details, and it is normally spoken to teach the hearers a truth or truths about life in the kingdom of God, uh, life in the, the rule and reign of of God. And oftentimes these parables will turn uh, the way things operate on this earth uh, on its head and demonstrate how life in the kingdom of God is different from the way life works in this world on an everyday basis. Uh, Jesus tells a great number of parables. There is some Oh, some uh, disagreement about whether certain sayings of Jesus are parables or not. But I remember hearing one time that fully one-third of Jesus' teaching is in the form of parables. So they are very important. The parable that we're going to be focusing on in our gospel lesson is the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And we get uh, both the telling of the parable by Jesus... And we get Jesus' explanation of the parable later 
to his disciples. And so we really get a double treat here. We get not only to hear the parable, but we get Jesus explaining the parable later on uh, as well. Um, this parable is actually the first of three parables in the section, Matthew 13, 24 through 35. Uh, we have the parable of the weeds and the wheat that we'll be looking at, followed by the parable of the mustard seed, and then the parable of the leaven. Now in all three, I think we can take these as a unit, and I want to I should stop here and give credit uh, where credit is due, and that is to uh, Dr. Jeffrey Gibbs, who just now is retired as a faculty member of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. In particular, his two commentaries on Matthew in the Concordia Commentary series published by Concordia Publishing House are just so very valuable. And it's Dr. Gibbs who points out that in these three parables, the weeds and the wheat, the mustard seed, and the leaven, um, Jesus speaks the, these parables uh, to those who are not his disciples, primarily to the crowds. Now, the disciples are present, and they hear the parables also. But these three parables are not spoken just to the disciples, but to the crowds, to the unbelievers in those crowds. And in the three parables uh, that follow these three, uh, Jesus will be uh, speaking exclusively to his disciples in a house, so very private teaching. But these are all public. And all three of these parables have, again, this sort of now and not yet aspect to them, that what people are seeing right now in the kingdom of God, namely the ruling and reigning of God um, as Jesus does it, what they're seeing now might look to them to be very unspectacular, we might say, uh, not, not very impressive, but just wait, and they're going to see great things coming. That's sort of the emphasis in both of these. And uh, there's sort of a different emphasis also in the parable itself and in Jesus' explanation to that parable. Um, in the parable, we're going to see that the parable sort of emphasizes the master's refusal to remedy the situation of weeds growing right alongside with the wheat. The master seems to be very patient and, and not wanting to do anything at that point to, to uh, try to separate the weeds and the wheat. And then in the explanation that Jesus gives, um, it seems like there with his disciples, he's emphasizing more the certainty of the final day that's going to come and the judgment that's going to take place and the fact that all things will be made right. And um, the difference in that emphasis, uh, as Dr. Gibbs points out, is that Jesus has really two different audiences when he's telling the parable and wants to emphasize two different things to those audiences. Num number one the, uh, is the audience of the crowds, the unbelievers in the crowds and the disciples. And then the second audience, again, a private audience in a house when he explains the parable, uh, is simply the disciples. And I think that's a, a very good explanation as to why we see um, two different emphases, we might say, uh, in both the telling of the parable and the explanation of the parable that follows. So let's go, first of all, uh, the telling of the parable in verses 24 through 30 of Matthew 13. I'll go, let's read this all the way through 
and then go back and, and talk about some of the parts of it. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Well, let's go back, first of all, <clears throat> and talk about the parable itself, and then we'll go to Jesus' explanation of it. First of all, notice there, he uses a parable to tell them, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. Uh, so again, the, the rule and reign of God might be compared to. So again, here's an earthly story that Jesus is telling to teach something about life in the kingdom of God and has earthly details. First of all, a man sows seed and an enemy sows weeds. Now, in uh, Palestine at that time, there was, I may still be, I don't really know, uh, there was a particular weed called the bearded darnel that looked just like wheat. And there would be times where it would come up and grow right alongside the wheat. And it was very difficult to distinguish between the, the wheat and this particular weed. So Jesus is actually using something here that, you know, that people could actually observe uh, as they would walk along wheat fields. They would, could actually see that at times there might be this particular weed among the wheat. Um, so the, the two sowings are done, we might say, the sowing of the good seed and the sowing of the weed, uh, weeds by the enemy. The plants come up, and the servants notice that you know, the master, they only know about the master sowing the good seed, and so they come to him and say, how is it that there are weeds out there? The master says, an enemy has done this. And so here's the first part of the parable, the actual telling of what has occurred, verses 24 through 28a. And then in 28b to 30, we have the response of the master. The servants are intent that they should go out and rip the weeds up and get them out of there because, of course, they're taking nutrients that uh, would ordinarily go to the, the weeds them, to the wheat itself. And the master, though, notice how patient the master is and really doesn't want them, uh, the servants, to do anything of the sort. Um, because he says, you know, uh, lest you in, uh, root up the wheat along with them. And this was a very real danger, a real realistic danger, that the roots, of course, of the weeds would be intertwined with the roots of the wheat. Uh, it would have been sown, it appears, right over the wheat. So they would grow up and the roots of the wheat and the weeds would sort of intertwine. It would be very realistic that in, in ripping up the wheat uh, 
are the weeds red or they would rip up some of the wheat as well. And then the notice the master says that eventually it's going to be taken care of, that the harvest, and of course that would symbolize judgment day, when the harvest comes he will tell the reapers that gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, gather the wheat into the barn. So let's get to the explanation here time-wise. We really need to do that. Verses 36 and following. Then he, Jesus, left the crowd. So notice he's leaving the crowds behind now and went into a house. And here is this private audience with his disciples. And notice here, his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. So notice here, the disciples really want to understand this parable. They, it it's, might seem on the surface uh, somewhat easy to understand for us as we hear it. But again, the disciples seemingly do not understand whatsoever and uh, versus the unbelievers who just simply dismiss Jesus and his teachings, the disciples really want to understand. So verse 37 in Matthew 13, Jesus is going to rattle off seven different um, explanations. There's uh, explanations of seven different aspects or items in this parable. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So the sower is Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, or Christians, we might say. The weeds are the sons of evil, of the evil one, I should say, and that, of course, would be Satan. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, so there we have that explanation. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with the fire, so will it be in the end of the age. The Son of Man, that would be Jesus, will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. That, of course, would be a reference to hell. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So, again, this is a parable that tells very well both the conditions we see right now. We see the sons of the evil one in this world living right next to and intertwined with the uh, sons of the kingdom. Christians, and there will nonetheless, though, come a day when there will be a great separation, symbolized here by a harvest, at which point the wheat and the weeds will be separated. Again, the weeds thrown into uh, the, the fiery furnace, as Jesus calls it here, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and of course, the sons of the kingdom shining uh, like the sun, the righteous shining like the sun on that day. Well, with the just few minutes we have left, let's first of all just talk about this parable. First of all, notice that uh, this is a parable, of course, of judgment, and notice that there are only two types of people. There are only those who are the sons of the kingdom and those who are the sons of the evil one. There's not a a third type. There's not an in-between. Uh, you are either one or are the other. 
And notice also that this is not just an amusing story that Jesus told. Um, he tells this to describe the very real work of Satan and the reality, again, the spiritual reality, uh, that we are either sons of the kingdom or sons of the devil. You know, I'm reminded that today there are, according to polls at least, if you believe polls, there are a lot of people in this day and age who do not believe in the existence of a literal devil, a literal Satan. And they don't acknowledge the existence of a place called hell. They deny both of them, don't believe either one of them exists. Well, they can believe whatever they want, of course, but Jesus, notice, um, not only acknowledges the existence of both, but takes them very literally and very seriously. And so, as really does the rest of Scripture. Um, and again, uh, this is a parable like the lesson from Isaiah uh, that ends with a very hopeful note that the righteous will prevail in the end by the grace of God. And we should say that we are righteous only as a result of God's work, both in this world through His Son, Jesus Christ, and, of course, also in our hearts and minds by the Holy Spirit. Remember, as Luther says in his explanation of the third article, I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to Him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with His gifts, sanctified and kept me in the one true faith. And again, these different uh, emphases uh, in the parable versus the explanation uh, again, different audiences. Jesus is saying to the crowds, uh, this is the way it appears right now, but there is coming a day uh, when something incredible is going to take place. In other words, that, that judgment and that the righteous shining like the sun, which they don't quite yet. It's, it's sort of hidden, uh, and it will be revealed more fully, as we were talking about in Isaiah, on that last day. Notice, the field here, just to close, the field is the world, Jesus says. There's a classic interpretation uh, of this parable that has the field being the church. And the uh, people will say that in the church we have both the true sons of God and the hypocrites who are the weeds. And I, I just want to point out here and emphasize that Jesus clearly here is talking about the world, uh, not limiting it necessarily to the church. Now, the world at Jesus' time, of course, the world around the disciples at that time, even did include the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, who were the religious people of the day, but of course were rank unbelievers, most of them at least, when it came to Jesus Christ. So in a sense, there's a crossover there, you might say, that, that they are included in the world, um, and in that sense, you could say that uh, this applies in the so-called church of the day. But I think the intent here is to speak in broader terms, uh, including all unbelievers, all true unbelievers. And again, notice there is no, uh, there's no third type. Uh, you are either a son of righteousness or not. And we thank God and give God praise and thanks that He has called us and chosen us and that we are 
uh, his children of righteousness. With that hopeful note, we bring to an end today's study. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen.